You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, thank you so much, Emily. This is so fun. Emily's sister-in-law was a fellow at our church. We have an intern program and met her husband there. So we are sort of related. Um, what What a treat for me to be with you all. I'd rather speak with young mothers than just about anyone else. And as I look at you, you know, I can just feel your exhaustion. Uh, <clears throat> we had five kids in seven years, and the last two were twins. And when they were six weeks old, we moved from Pennsylvania to northern Virginia. And I had no help, no friends, no family. And I was dying in a pile. You know, it was crazy. And we didn't have sleepers. We, we once realized we had gone about ten years without sleeping through the night on a regular basis. And that was crazy. But one of the lessons that I learned, and I didn't learn it right away. I think you learn a lot when you go through these hard times, was how helpful it was to see life in terms of seasons. So I thought I'd just take about five minutes, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. I always think it's a little bit better to, to, for you to hear a little bit from me, and that might open up the freedom for questions. So no question is out of bounds. If I don't know the answer, I'll just ask my sister because she knows all. Uh, but um, one of the principles that I, I have found over the years is how helpful it is to see life in terms of seasons. You know, we have that season of being a college kid and then the season of being a single working girl perhaps and then the season of getting married and the adjustments of the newlywed years and then the season of that first baby when you sort of think you've got your marriage all put together and then you have that first child and you sort of throw your marriage all up in the air again and have to renegotiate. And the season of parenting little toddlers, the season of parenting teens, the season of the empty nest, then for some, they bounce back. So I have found it very helpful to see life in terms of seasons and to realize that every season is going to have unique challenges challenges to that particular season, but also really specific blessings that are blessings for that particular season. And I remember when I was in the season that many of y'all are in with little people, one of my challenges was frustration. You get up in the morning, you get the house picked up, you get the kids fed, you get them off to school, or if you still have toddlers, you don't get them off to school yet. But by the end of the day, it's all undone. You know, and you look at your day or your husband comes in and says, hey, honey, what'd you get done today? And you just sort of look at him with glazed eyes. He says, nothing. I just got through it. And so frustration, particularly if you've been in the marketplace with an exciting career, is really hard because all of a sudden you're thrust into the home where you don't have goals that you were able to attain or progress that you were able to check off that you made. So I think frustration, I discovered, was one of my very specific challenges. Another one is the lack of appreciation. I mean, we don't have, it's rare to have a four-year-old who says to you, Mommy, you're doing a great job of raising me. (laughs) You know, that just doesn't happen. So a lack of appreciation, you don't have the affirmation that you perhaps had in the marketplace. And your husband is not likely to say, Honey, thank you for carting the kids all over Birmingham or Homewood or Mountain Brook today. You know, you're in the car all day long and nobody appreciates it. So there's a a lack of appreciation. Those are two of the challenges to parenting little people. But one of the blessings is the really funny things that toddlers say in particular. I remember when Susie, one of our twins, saw the ocean for the first time. She looked at it and her eyes just became huge. 
And she said, Mommy, it's too full. You need to let some of it out. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was so precious. And the only reason I remember it is because I quickly wrote it down on a scrap piece of paper and put her initials in the date. Otherwise, I would have forgotten. Now, y'all have cell phones. So all you have to do is whip them out, put it in your notes section under your child's name and the date, and save it. Because funny things that little people say is a blessing of that season. Teenagers don't say very funny things. <laughs> there are other blessings in the teen years. So just applying this principle of challenges and blessings to each season of life and realizing when you're in the season of parenting young people in particular, we have to learn to postpone to the next season of life something that we'd really like to be doing now because you cannot pack it all in any one season. And as I look back on my life, I think one of my regrets is that I tried to pack too much in. And I wish I had just lived in the season I was in and really enjoyed it, rather than feeling like I had to accomplish a thousand things. So that's just a little bit of background on the seasons principle, which has been helpful to me at every stage of my life. So with that... I would love just to open it up to questions. I mean, I could talk forever, but I'd really love to hear your questions, if you have some. Okay, yes, great, Kelly, thank you. Since I've read your book, but when I did read it, it was right when I was having children, and um, one thing that you said, that it, two things from that book that have really stuck with me is one, that maybe you would mow the lawn. Yeah. Have, like the best feeling because you could be like, it's still it's still cut. It's still cut. Right. Like the house might be a mess and your husband's like, I'll cut the lawn and you were like, No, I, I love doing it. Yeah. Out there and <laughs> That's right. And I get that. But um another thing you said is and this has now been challenged now that I've been married for fourteen years and is that not that being the wrong person for you is like a no fly zone. And I don't feel like we, I hear that anymore. Like uh, Wondering if you married the right person. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that, I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you, Kelly, because that's a really honest statement. I think, you know, when we marry and when we say our vows, it's, it's for better, for worse, and sickness and health and richer and poor till death do us part. And we have to fall back on that promise we made when we made our marital vows. And it doesn't do any good to visit. We'll revisit, well, maybe I married the wrong person. That's not a, a valid question because you are married and we need to grow in our marriages. And now I'm not talking about in severe cases of abuse and situations like that. That's a whole nother ball game. And that's when you go see Deborah and she can give you good counsel. But by and large, through the routine ups and downs of marriages, we have to sort of get out of that what I call my junior high mentality. Well, I'm just not going to speak to him again because he didn't please me or he didn't minister to me or whatever. And we have to remember the vow. Okay, I married this man for life. So if I go through this period of not wanting to speak to him, I've eventually got to make up. So I may as well do it now. And I call, what I call this is, we're all tempted by this many, many times in our life. But I just have an expression, I call it emotional divorce. What emotional divorce looks like is this. You may have a patio that you have a glass door and you close that glass door on your patio and it's like we close our hearts and our innermost feelings across this man and we say to ourselves, well, I'll live with him but I'm no longer going to share my deepest thoughts with this person. It's just too hard. It's too painful. I don't want to go there anymore. We 
try to work it out and it doesn't work. So we slam that emotional door and then basically we become emotionally divorced. We're two people, we're roommates in the same house. And that is miserable. You don't want to live like that. So what do you do? First of all, you recognize that we'll all be tempted by emotional divorce many times. And a lot of times it's in the period of transition or period of a crisis. We're tempted by or insecurity, a move, a new job, a family crisis. We're tempted because we're vulnerable. So you determine to recognize it. Okay, I'm just being tempted towards an attitude of emotional divorce. But I'm not going to succumb to it. And you take like a sledgehammer to hit against those glass doors. When you begin to hit against a really thick glass door, it doesn't usually burst, right? Little cracks begin to form and they spread and they spread as you continue to beat at it. So we continue to beat at it. And what does that really look like? It looks like you go to an older mentor couple, which Deborah has just invited you to sign up for and share what's going on. That's a great encouragement. You get counseling. You determine to do whatever it takes to take your marriage deeper. And most often it's through these really hard times that your marriage is going to go to a deeper level. But you've got to be willing to take that sledgehammer and not succumb to emotional divorce. And I think one of the things, too, this is just a, uh, an extra thing on this season, is I do believe that when you're a mom with little children, it's the hardest season in your marriage. Now, that's a generalization that there are always exceptions. But you're, you're exhausted. Often your husband's on a high career track. You may be also working outside the home on a career path. You may have moved. Finances may be tight. There's just an awful lot of stresses. And it's easy to think, which I thought, well, I'll put my marriage on hold till life comes down. But the reality is life doesn't calm down. Life only gets more complicated. And we have to set aside time to invest in our marriage. Because when the children are grown and you look at each other, we, we've seen a lot of empty, marriage, nest, empty nest marriages fall apart. Because you look at one another and what was keeping you together just walked out the door. But you want and you can have your best years. Johnny and I now are having the most fun we've probably ever had in our entire life. And it'll be 50 years this August. But early on, we determined that we were going to take one night a week. This was a, a wise older couple gave us this advice and go out on a date. And when we were in seminary, we didn't have any money, and our date would be go to the laundromat and uh, do the laundry and then go to a store like Home Depot and walk up and down the aisles and pretend like what we would buy if we had any money. <laughs> and then it got harder. The children all came, and we had to have two babysitters often to take care of our crowd. And I actually remember one night when we were getting ready to go out, Allison, our oldest, was saying, a blessing because I was feeding the kids early and she prayed, Dear Jesus, please help the babysitters to be able to handle us. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't kept this. We haven't made it every week. Inevitably, you're going to have emergencies that come up. But looking back over our marriage, we've probably made it 50% of the time. If it hadn't been on the calendar every week, we wouldn't have made it. And it hadn't always been an evening. It could be a Saturday morning two-block period. It, you, you, there's great flexibility in this. But the point is to set aside two hours a week for a date alone with your husband. And it's not a date in which to talk about an issue, whatever the issue is, or a problem. Do that at another time. 
the purpose of this block of time is simply to nourish, nourish your marriage friendship and have fun together. And I found that probably that's been one of the real staying points in our marriage. I did not mean to go on that long, Kelly. Okay. What else would you all have on your minds? Some other questions about anything. Yeah, so Emily. Your, um, one of your books, I think it is the And Then I Had Kids, talks about the sort of the myriad demands placed on young mothers, young women, yeah. um, you know, to volunteer at your children's schools and at the mm-hmm. church. And, you know, you may have like a, a career outside the home or a part time job. or And then there's the pressure of keeping your home a certain way and, yeah. you know, taking care of the children. How did you discern of those extra things? Yeah. What were what God was call, legitimately calling you to versus yeah. what you just felt pressure pressure to do? That's a great question. Uh, I'd, I'd say one, take it one semester at a time. Don't say forever, but in August, you know, as you're starting start up, you know, have a chat with your husband. Okay, what is realistic for our family for this year? And make a commitment. Based on that, what do I feel called to given my gifts this year? What are the needs of the children? What can I postpone that I'd really like to be doing now but needs to wait to another season? I remember meeting a woman in Atlanta who was a gourmet cook and had the, had the gift of hospitality. And that's what they would do. They had a lovely home and they would have people into their homes and they would cook. She had four little toddlers. And she said, I'm having such a hard doing it, time doing this. And I said, sweetie, you've got to postpone that. For a few years, God will give you this ministry or this gift back, but just put it on the table for a few years. So I think learning the art of postponing is really important. I wish I had done that. Another thing that I think helps is to recognize that we fall prey to parental peer pressure. And it's the peer pressure. We tend to think of peer pressure is with teenagers, but the reality is there's an awful lot of mom peer pressure. And it's the peer pressure that says whoever's child is involved in the most enrichment activities is the best mom. And I remember sitting at a basketball game when our twins were in fifth grade. And one mom kept looking at her watch and saying, oh, my daughter's got to get out of here because she's taking violin. And she's got the first violin and the concert coming up. And another mother said, yeah, my daughter's one of the leaders of the youth group. And she's got to make phone calls for this. And another one was in accelerated Spanish. And another one was doing this. All these activities, and they were good activities. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I need to go home and sign my girls up for more stuff. (laughs) And what I came to realize is you have to ask the question, and as parents, this is part of our job, is to project out 10 years and ask the question, 10 years from now, is it going to be more important that we sign our son up for one more soccer team in order that he might earn one more trophy? that 10 years from now is going to be gathering dust on the closet shelf? Or is it more important that we said no to one more activity and instead chose to have family dinners together several times a week to invest in building family friendships? Do we want to collect trophies that are only going to gather dust? Or do we want to say no and invest in family friendships that will last a lifetime? And you will not be a popular mother. Because somebody else's kid is getting to do it. And you will feel less than as you compare what your children are doing to what that other mother's kids are doing. So I think we need to be aware of parental peer pressure or the comparison trap. 
and really just prayerfully say, God, what would you have for me in this next semester? What's best for our family? And, and our goals, our overriding goals is, I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and my neighbor is myself. And when we're in family, our closest neighbors are our husbands and our children. So that just gives us the priority there. But it's very hard, especially when the options are between good and good, mm -hmm. and they're all good causes. It's not so difficult when they're between good and evil. We can discern that a little bit better. That's a great question. Yeah. What, Deborah? So, and you talked about the um, just the chaos of those early years. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of us in here, some of us are in the early years, toddler or baby, but some of us are beyond into yeah. um, elementary school and even into middle and high school. But uh -huh. um, in the midst of the chaos of five children, right. you know, at all those stages, what what were some of your own how, how did your relationship with the Lord look and yeah. did it always look the way you wanted it to look or the yeah. way you thought it should look and and how did that affect that, what you did right. you know, in strength? that's a great question um, I found that my first priority needed to be carving out time alone with the Lord each morning I mean if I went like two or three days without time alone in the word and on my knees I became a real witch to live with because I really needed Jesus. And so the laundry's left undone, everything's put aside, and you take the first best in maybe 20 minutes. You know, if this is a practice that you need to start, I'd say make your goal 20 minutes. Be in the Word and, and be in prayer. And I always, for years, I've read a psalm every morning and a proverb. Proverbs are easy because you just match it to the day. The Psalms, I would just go through and put a little check and then the next time an X and the next time a curly Q. So the Psalms section of my Bible is really a mess. But I've asked God for many years, God, give me one word to walk on this day. One word that's your character trait. Uh, to recall that to mine or give it to me as I'm in your word. And there's, there's a great proverb it's Proverbs 14:26, and it says basically says that our kids' faith. Wait, who has their Bible? Or I have. The, I'd love to just read it. Do you have one right there? Will you read? Oh, yeah. Will, Will you read it, Deborah? Proverbs, I don't have my glasses. 14:26. 14, 14, oh, you got it. You got it. Oh, you got it. It's right. Go. It, it, the, the Lord has it for me. There. <laughs> um, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Yeah. Now, what it says, um, I have it in the NIV, which I like. It says, the fear of the Lord is our strength and our security. And it's in that that our children have refuge. It's not, what's interesting to me about this verse, it's not that our children have refuge in us, mom and dad. It's that our children will have refuge in our faith. So even you have a child, for example, who walks away from the Lord. Most, and you say, honey, how can I pray for you this week? They're usually still willing to want mama's prayers. What would be devastating to them if, was, would be if mom or dad walked away from the Lord. So our children get a sense of security from our relationship with Jesus. That gives them great security. But it's a discipline, and I think it's a discipline, again, as your kids see you in the scriptures and see you on your knees, that's going to build up in their heads. Oh, this is what moms do. And God comes through. He comes through in the Word. I, I find the older I get, the more 
I just am starved to be in the Word of God. And he always reminds me of his faithfulness. And he always reminds me that it's not up to me. So it looks like setting aside the first 20 minutes of every day. And I have a real recommendation. It's so easy to get up in today's world and look at your smartphone and see what your feeds are or what's come through. Put your phone in a different room and get a paper Bible that you can mark in and a journal. I mean, your your Bibles on phones are fine. They're best, you know, maybe in church or waiting in carpool line or in a doctor's office. But you want to have a paper Bible that you're marking up. I, one of my goals, because I have five children, is to have really falling apart five Bibles so that when I die, each one of my children will have one of Mom's Bibles. That's, I'm on my fourth now, but I just left it in South Carolina, so I might have to start over. Uh, but I'm hoping to have five that are really marked up. But it's the Word of God that gives us the power. It's the Word of God that's going to change lives. And even more, it's the Word of God that gives us our moral authority and the Word of God that's going to last for our children. That's what's going to make the biggest difference. One of my main prayers I pray for my kids is from Psalm 119.105. And it says, Thy word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. So my main prayer for my whole life has been for my five children and now my 21 grandchildren is that they would fall in love with the word of God. They would fall in love with the word of God. You were going to say something? follow up with that. You said, you mentioned the Psalms and Uh, Proverbs. If someone in this room has never done that before, which is always a possibility, right? where would you, would you recommend that they start in Psalms or Proverbs? Yeah. If they are, um, because I too can bear witness to the, you know, you can get the verse of the day sent to you and you can read a devotional book that will have scripture in it and there will be, that to me is like the, um, it might be like a snack, but it's not like, it's, it's more like fast food. It's not like the beauty of the meal. That yeah. When you open, open the whole Bible, you get the context yeah. of following a passage right. from day to day to day. So where would you recommend if someone is looking at starting? At starting, I'd say start with Psalm 1 and ask God to give you one phrase in Psalm 1 that you're meant to have for that day. And then go to Psalm 2, go to Psalm 3. If you have a little more time, one of my favorite books in the Bible is Ephesians. And... Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And if you go, if you just read chapter 1 of Ephesians, you can circle, oh my goodness, so many character traits of the Lord. One is Ephesians 1.8 that I love. It says that God lavishes us with his love. Now, lavish, it's a good old southern word, right? He lavishes. But in our mental state, how we treat the Lord is he's sort of, he's frugal. And he just parcels it out as we need it. And I realized that that was my attitude toward the Lord. And God would say, no, I want to lavish you with my love. So I love Ephesians. If you want to be in one of the Gospels, Luke is a wonderful place to start if you have also a little more time for study. And when I first learned to study the Bible, um, a guy taught me, okay, write out the verse. That's one column. A few verses, like a small paragraph. The second column is observation. What do I observe about that verse? Who, what, when, where, why? Are there a list of things in it? And then the third column is application. How might this verse apply to me in my life today or to someone I know? Verse, observation, application. Devotional books are great, but and I read three different ones, but 
the greatest thing, and especially if you're limited in time, is having the Lord just speak directly to you. That's the most precious treasure. But you do need to put your smartphones in another room. <laughs> That's great. Great. Um, I think, like I'm seeing at Loom, you know, our oldest is 14, where they're going to be out of the house yeah. in seven years and they're gone. Um, what is one thing you would go back and do, you know, if you had those years left or what? What is something, you know, I feel like I am almost frantic. Like, I have four more years to teach them everything they need and, uh, to know. You know, I have four more years to make sure they they know everything. And that feels <laughs> frantic yeah. to me. Yeah. And I find I'm not enjoying them as much yeah. as I want to. I feel pressure. To get yeah. it right in my limited time. You'll never get it right. I know. Um, <laughs> already you never get it right. But I, I want to enjoy it. You want to enjoy it. it. Well, I would say release the pressure on yourself. Every mother feels like she has ruined her children over and over again. That is a given. You know, we feel like we've ruined our kids. What we have to remember is our ability to ruin our child is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem him. And that mantra just needs to be in our heads. Our ability to ruin our child or grandchild is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem him. And a verse, the couple verses that were so helpful to me when I felt it was all up to me and I was praying about a child and it was probably a pre-teenager and I was desperate, I ran into a verse that's Hebrews uh, 25, 7.25, Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34. And they say essentially the same thing, which is a job description of Jesus. One of Jesus' job descriptions right now is that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And all of a sudden I thought, Lord, it's not all up to me. You are sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for my child. How cool is that? And so... I think you lower the pressure on yourself and you know that you're going to you're going to mess them up. You you think it's terminal, it's not. <laughs> but also that you cannot be or do all, especially in the social circles that we run in, the pressure is tremendous to succeed and sometimes our success can become an idol as a parent and sometimes our children can become idols, but God has given us the exact children in the exact birth order, with the exact personalities, not merely so that we can raise them, but I believe in order that they might be his tools in our life to grow us up into the women he's created us to be. So that child that we just do not get at all, God's given us that precious child to help us get on our knees before the Lord. That stillborn child, that child was a gift. That child that may... Get into Harvard is a gift, but no more special than the one with Down syndrome. Every child is a gift. And every child will be used by God to keep us on our knees and to help us grow in them. But one other, two other verses that have encouraged me in this. One is Philippians 1.6 and 2.6. For he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God begins the work in our children, and it's up to God to complete it. And then another one that's a favorite of mine is 1 Thessalonians 5.24. that says, Faithful is he who calls you. He has called you to be the parent of the particular children that he's given you. 
That's God's call. Faithful is he who calls you. He will bring it to pass. And what happens is, I, I know he's called me, but then I try to bring it to pass. You know, and I fail and I fall on my face. And it goes back again to he's the one that has to do it. He's the one that has to do it. So, I don't know if that's helpful, but relax and enjoy it and relieve the pressure of yourself. Um, I remember when our son, Chris, was applying to college. He's the middle one. And he could not decide between the University of North Carolina and, and the University of Virginia. And I was so stressed. Okay, how are we going to make this decision, Lord? How are we going to make this decision? And finally I realized, you know, Susan, God is not going to tell you. This child is leaving. And God is going to tell him. And that was a good learning for me in cutting the umbilical cord. But also it was, it was really fun to watch how God showed him. And he needed to know that the decision was from God and not mom and dad. <coughs> so it's a lot of letting go and just trusting, okay, God, you love this child more than I do. You know how you've packaged him more than I do. You know the plans that you have prepared for him. And he will, he will lead us in his time. Sometimes he seems a little slow, and we wish God would tell us a little faster, but he will lead us. Those are great questions. Yeah. No, you go. I have a friend. Is she is Margo? Yeah. No, I don't know what I tell me. A good friend, Margo. If I ever complain about my kids, she says, Sarah, what do you think God's trying to teach you in this? Which makes you want to like slap her. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's kind of it's ingrained in my head. Yeah. What is God trying to teach me? And um, I mean, through all my God is teaching me through each of my children. But one, my spirit is one. Yeah. Um, uh, the other day I like, yelled at him. I was like, Why can't you be happy with the toys you have? Like, yeah. why you always want more? Mm. And then I was like, oh. I know. Get it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> And anyway, I just feel like everything I say to this kid, I'm hearing it um, in this, like, reverse as of God's <laughs> yeah. to me. And uh, it just, like, breaks that anger. And it's just really... That's um, great. So you're seeing your child as God's instrument in your life. Right. That's I mean, beautiful. I It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop even when you're a grandmother with a lot of grandchildren. Yeah, it still doesn't stop. Yeah. What were you going to say, Marie? So, one of the things I struggle with with our children, and they're eight, five, and two, is balancing, you know, like I've read Elise Fitzpatrick's Give Them Grace, yeah. with the notion that God has given me the job of, mm-hmm. one, showing them His grace and how His love works, uh-huh. but also He's given yeah. me the job of raising them, of yeah. teaching them to Discipline. be disciplined, you know, productive, faithful servants in his kingdom. And balancing showing them grace with teaching them discipline is something I struggle with. Yeah, that's really hard. I actually, my blog that posted last week is a a video one. Every now and then I do video, and it's on that exact topic. Um, Love and discipline. Love and discipline. And it helps me to, to visualize the package of love and discipline like a seesaw. You know, you get on the seesaw, and one of the fun things for kids to do is to, if they're different weights and sizes, you want to position yourself so that you can balance and hang in midair. 
and that means the heavier one needs to move back and the lighter one needs to move up or vice versa. And you need both ends of the seesaw or it's no seesaw, right? So love and dis- discipline are partners. They're not, they're not antagonists. So it's both. And so what do you do? Usually I think we fall into one of two traps. We fall into either erring on the side of self-esteem. We want our child to feel good about himself. You know, we've bought into this whole package. Therefore, we're really lenient. We want to build his self-image. We don't want him to be unhappy. So we're likely when he pitches a fit at 4 o'clock because he wants a cookie and dinner's in a half an hour, we give in. Or he throws a temper tantrum in the grocery store and we give in just to make him quiet because we're embarrassed. When we buy into the philosophy of self-esteem, our motives are pure. We want our child to be secure. That's a good thing. But we're going about it the wrong way. Our kids need to know that they're not the boss. Because a child who's four, who controls the house, is going to become insecure, not secure. Because God did not mean for that four-year-old to have that much power in the family. Okay? So, on one side, we tend to fall into the trap of what I call the religion of self-esteem. On the other side, the religion of regulations. So, your child hits the front door after school and you say, Okay, go put your backpack out and backpack up and get your tennis shoes out because you've got to go to soccer and you didn't clean your room. And we just find that we're spitting out orders. And wouldn't it be better if we just curled up and had a snack and said, how is your day? And if you have a teenager, you have to ask questions that call for more than a one-word answer. You know, what was something you learned today? Uh, who was a friend that you played with today? But here's the philosophical, I believe, principle that's most important in balancing discipline and love. We need to be Firm in the early years, the first six years of a child's life are the most important for being firm. If you're firm in the early years and then gradually loosen up, you won't have the trouble so much in the teen years. Too often parents coddle little people and then try to come down like gangbusters in the teen years and that doesn't work. So be very firm in the early years. Have clear standards, specific consequences. It's better to have few that you follow through on than a whole lot of rules and regulations that you're not going to follow through on. And you and your husband need to be on the same page. And if on the seesaw, one of you is more inclined to fall into the, to the religion of regulations and the other the religion of self-esteem, you've got to balance yourself on that seesaw. And you have to always have a united front because if you don't, the child's going to go to the more lenient parent. You, you all know that. But here's the goal of our discipline. Our goal in discipline is to tr- is ultimately we want our children to obey God because we know that he knows best, that he loves them the most, that he knows what he has prepared for them. If we want our children to obey God, we have to teach them to obey us. They need to obey us. A mom and dad whose voice they hear say, I love you so much, whose arms they feel expressing that love. In order that as they grow, they'll be weaned from obeying us, whose voice they audibly hear, whose arms they feel, to obeying a heavenly Father who loves them even more than we do, but whose voice they may or may not audibly hear, 
and whose arms they're going to feel mostly through the body of Christ. But who they have been taught loves them more than anyone. How can we expect them to want to obey a heavenly father who loves them unconditionally when they have not been taught to obey an earthly parent whose voice they can hear, whose arms they feel? So I think, again, you have the long-range goal in view and you don't see, you don't see um, discipline and love as opposites, but you see them as partners. And, you know, when a, lo- a child is little, they got to learn to obey just because you say so. You know, they want to go out and play soccer on the street. You're going to say no. And you can't get into a philosophical argument about it because they're not going to understand the dangers. They've got to learn that no means no and not maybe if I pitch a fit. No means no because sometimes God tells us no and we may not understand it and we may not like it. But it's a love no because he knows better the dangers or what's ahead than we do. So it is with our kids. And then as they grow up, you begin to reason and explain the whys as they get to be a little bit more mature. And if you do this when they're young, it does. the teenage years were truly my favorite in all of parenting. But all of us are different, and some of us are going to like the baby years. I was just too exhausted and too overwhelmed with babies, so I didn't love the baby years. But um, it's different for all of us. You were going to say something. Are you going to say something? Yeah, this is on a totally different <coughs> yeah. day, but, um, in the mornings now, like I can't turn even turn on the news. Because yeah, a lot that's on there, and my children are growing up in a brand right. new world. I totally get yeah. that, but it is it makes me so sad because when something bad happens, like when something bad happens to a person, people want the worst. Like yeah, they do. Whether it's yeah. social media, whether it's the media itself, they're ganging up and being like, just and I, and I don't want my kids. I want my kids to live in reality and know that's that's what's out there. But it makes me sad too that they think that's how people work. Yeah. And then on a on another note, you see people no political agenda at all, but like leaders, and they're acting that way too. Mm-hmm. And it's just like very hard to like. I don't like restrict my kids from watching like normal things. I mean, yes, I'm not going to get watching R rated movie. I'll have to look at a PG thirteen with my older one. But I'm not sheltering them. Yeah. But also, like I don't know. It just. It's this broken world, and it's sad. I don't know how to handle it with yeah. a ten and eight and a, and a eight and ten year old. That makes me yeah. sad. Well, <laughs> I think that there's so much bad news that it's really fine to restrict what they're looking at because it's just overwhelming. And I think what we concentrate on is character. We concentrate on building character. I mean, you know, I live in Washington D.C., and it's about the most toxic place you can imagine to live right now. And the Washington Post comes in every day. Somebody has fallen from grace. Somebody has done something horrible. You know, the CEO has been caught with fraud. And what begs the question is, are we teaching our kids character? So my husband and I got really concerned about this when our children were your age. your age kids and we wrote a book called character matters raising kids with values that last and you can get it right off my website but we take eight character traits and we talk about how you grow in character together as a family because the reality is we don't just get character and then zap our kids with it right we're all growing in character our whole lives 
but it's character that we have to focus on. It's integrity. Integrity is just lost when we look at our culture. Honesty, where's honesty? Honesty is becoming do whatever you want to do so long as you don't get caught and no one finds out. That's not integrity. So praise your children for developing character traits. I'm so proud of you because you shared that toy with your brother. Or I'm so proud of, that's a character trait. I'm so proud of you because you looked that adult in the eye and you communicated with her. That's a character trait of respect. We have to teach our children these things. Um, when they uh, do something they're not supposed to do and they we prayed our kids would get caught. If they were ever doing anything wrong, <laughs> pray your kids get caught. Because it's wonderful to get caught when you're young. Uh, and if they get caught, you don't talk the teachers out of their punishment. You let them walk with their punishment. You walk beside them in their punishment. Because if you bail your, your kids out, they're going to learn inadvertently that their actions have no consequences. Good or bad. Mom or dad are going to take care of it. That's, that's not the way we want to raise our kids. So you let them walk through the punishment with grace and you stand beside them, but you let them bear it so that they learn that actions have consequences. But, yeah, you know, I've gotten to where we, well, we don't have kids at home right now, but I have to limit the news myself because I can just get depressed listening to all the stuff that's going on. And then another place that this helps is really having, raising, and this is what you have here, and I know we need to quit, but what you have here is community. Raising your kids with other moms who have the same values. That is huge. That is so huge. I mean, Kelly, you could probably say to one of Anne's children now, sweetie, you, can't, you shouldn't do that because of so-and-so and so-and-so. And if Anne said it, it would be like, oh, mom. But see, Kelly's saying it. So we have to get each other's back as we raise kids. Do, yeah. Yeah. No, there's one more. One more. We'll take one more question. Okay. And I just want to mention, um, Susan will also be available tomorrow for the spring coffee at 7 o'clock at Kramer House or 9.30 at the home of Christine Denniston. And the information is online. You don't yeah. need RSVP, but the address is right That's there right online. There. Holly. Um, I, yeah, I guess Holly. This is probably the yeah. last one. I was just... Sometimes on rough days, I think about being a grandmother <laughs> and how people tell me that like that's the real payoff. Yeah. I actually read a book by an economist who, as a secular person, wrote about the investment that uh -huh. you're making in children. And so I was curious, like as a grandmother, when you see your own children raising your grandchildren, what what is it like for you and ha what would you, if you could speak to yourself as a young or yeah. middle, you know, parent, what would you say? What would you yeah. what would you want yourself to know that you didn't know back then? Yeah. Um yeah, you're in the hardest phase cuz you're doing it now and I'm not I'm not the main responsible person. But but you still have things you're concerned about with your children. But you do see the payoff of your own kids doing these amazing things as they raise their kids. But I guess a different way to say this, Holly, is we live with the um, false reality that one day we'll get there. We'll get there to that mysterious there where we trust God completely, where everything's okay. We'll just get there. But you'll never get there. It just doesn't happen this side of heaven. And if you realize that we'll never get there to where we've got it all together, we really trust God, we've gotten there, it really relieves the pressure. 
So even as grandmothers, yeah, you still struggle with some of the same issues. They just present in different ways. And if you're not having to, but you don't have that main responsibility. And that's a, a huge relief. Our big responsibility as grandparents is to pray, is to pray like crazy for our kids. But so I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know where the blog thing wound up. If it's everybody, everybody has like closed it. Oh, okay. Oh, it got logged out. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I can. Can they sign up on your blog? Yeah, if you just go on your phone to susanalexanderyates.com, that's probably even easier. Just go on your phone to susanalexanderyates.com, and it'll come right up, and you can sign up right there. And you mentioned that some of your books are available for purchase through the blog. Yeah, you can right? get any of our books right straight through the blog. What yeah. About the refuge in uh, 1426. Oh, and then tell them what this. Is. This is yeah. This, oh. this is just sort of a Emily selection of greatest hits from, <laughs> <laughs> from Susan's blog. It's I really commend it all to you. They're they're really wonderful. Between <laughs> this and the blog <laughs> itself and future blog posts, signing up to receive future blog posts in the book, those are all great next steps. But if you're also looking for more next steps, kind of interpersonally, feel free to um, email me and get in touch with me, Deborah at CathedralAdvent.com. And I'm wondering, Susan, will yeah. you? Who here's my man? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> will you? Will you pray for I'd us love and to. bless us? Yes. Lord, thank you for these women. Oh, Father, thank you for the children they're raising. Thank you for their husbands. And Father, you know how frail we feel and how unprepared for what's thrown at us on a daily basis. And yet, Father, your grace covers all of that. You know us. You know our weaknesses. You know these children. And Father, I pray that you would just remind each woman here this morning that you've got it. That you've got them and that you've got their kids. And that you are the one who's going to raise them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.